As one of his final acts leaving office, Barack Obama commuted the 35-year jail sentence of Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Bradley Manning, the young soldier who leaked hundreds of thousands of secret US government documents to WikiLeaks. She is a hero to many and a traitor to others. This morning, we're talking about whistleblowers. In studio, Graeme Finlay is a lecturer in School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Declan Power is a security analyst. And Estelle Fedman is a mediator and research associate at the School of Law in Trinity College. And later we'll be talking to Annie Mashon. She's an MI5 whistleblower and author of the book Spies, Lies and Whistleblowers. Graham Finley, will you talk us through, first of all, Chelsea Manning's story? Well, Chelsea Manning really became a cause celeb in 2010, <coughs> where she was a, an intelligence specialist in the U.S. Army based in Iraq who, like so many soldiers, wasn't terrifically happy with the war. Uh, she had arguably signed up to fight Um, There was a tremendous scarcity of intelligence analysts in the service. And so they kept her on, even though she had shown a number of um, issues arising about her fitness to serve and was clearly very, very troubled. She uh, felt isolated. She had experienced tremendous harassment from her fellow uh, service people, but also a certain level of support from, from the hierarchy. But she had access to hundreds of thousands of documents, which she leaked. At first, she started downloading in vast quantities. She leaked a few, but by 2010, she did a very, very large dump of, of material, including Afghan and Iraqi war logs, all of the sort of data the U.S. keeps on its own operations, videos of airstrikes, uh, which were you know, highly controversial, and uh, diplomatic cables. And she uh, finally got in touch with uh, WikiLeaks and, and gave it to them. And they did an initial brief dump and then a, a really large dump, which, which attracted an incredible amount of attention. And uh, she was then sort of um, exposed by a fellow sort of hacker or a fellow you know, Internet activist and uh, arrested uh, under military law in, in 2010, where she was transferred to um, a military prison, military brig, and uh, awaited trial for years and years and years. And much of the sympathy devoted to her is surrounding this the conditions of her incarceration, which um, perhaps because she was potentially suicidal, you know, involved long periods of solitary confinement, um, being kept awake during the day, um, eventually being stripped of at least for one night of of all of her clothing, right, uh, including, you know, so that she was naked. She even appeared <clears throat> naked at, you know, prisoner inspection. Um, and this clearly had profound effects on her her already precarious mental state. So, uh, and this detention went on for years and then it was under varying conditions. But that was the basis for a lot of the sympathy for her. She was brought up on a number of charges, including under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, including aiding the enemy, which bears a potential death penalty, although the the military prosecutors said they were not going to seek a death penalty in her case. She was not convicted of aiding the enemy. She was convicted of a number of other charges, including a violation of the Espionage Act, which is a 1917 act from World War I, which is incredibly powerful and has been used in the U.S. to hound whistleblowers since then, um, including Daniel Ellsberg uh, surrounding the Pentagon Papers. So she has been in a military prison in <coughs> Leavenworth, maybe the most famous military prison in the United States, until just a couple days ago, uh, serving her sentence, uh, where she has been allowed limited amounts of ability to explore the her trans her identity as a trans woman, uh, but not to the extent of allowing her to have long hair, for example. And, and so it seems like she's going to be an important figure uh, having emerged from custody because it doesn't look like she wants to retire into private life, mm. but she's actually going to, to continue 
uh, whatever work she's engaged in. And I think that's one of the things we want, want to debate. You know, what is what did she do and how do we feel about it? Now, was it controversial when Barack Obama commuted the sentence? It, you know, in the context of a sort of post-presidential campaign of such vitriol, everything Barack Obama did was controversial. I was actually kind of surprised that more wasn't made of it by by the Republicans. Uh, and so, you know, he was commuting a lot of people's sentences. He was pardoning a lot of people. He pardoned more people than any other president has uh, before on his way up because these were largely people who were serving, you know, life sentences for what looked like minor drug offenses under three strikes and you're out rules. But he did also um, intervene in a lot of particular cases. So I was struck by there was a relative lack of controversy mm. surrounding this. Maybe it's because the, the Republicans had other other concerns. All right. So <clears throat> Declan Power, um, Major Ashton Fine was the lead prosecutor for um, the, the military. <clears throat> and in describing Manning, he said that she knowingly aided the enemy by transmitting state secrets to WikiLeaks. That was the, the charge on which she was not found guilty. But he went on, she was not a humanist. She was a hacker who described her fellow soldiers as dykes or global idiots. She was not a troubled young soul. She was a determined soldier with the ability, knowledge and desire to harm the U.S. She was not a whistleblower. She was a traitor. Now, you know, some of the information that was leaked um, people argued led to the withdrawal of the U.S. Army from Iraq. You know, atrocities involving killing, you know, elderly women or young children and dubious airstrikes to destroy evidence of those kind of incidents. What was your view of the effect of what was leaked and the actions of Chelsea Manning? I, I don't think what she leaked had a massive detrimental effect operationally on the U.S., uh, war effort at that time because I think if it, if that had been the case I think the prosecution would have taken that out and they would have highlighted it in stark relief and if uh, they could have made a case that uh, information leaked uh, contributed to deaths of US service people or US intelligence assets in the field that would have been taken out and highlighted in stark relief and Chelsea Manning would not be free today I think the reality is a, a large a, a conglomerate, if you like, of information that I don't think even Chelsea Manning, certainly Chelsea Manning, had no full knowledge about what she had on her hands uh, was was leaked. And I think the other reason that uh, she probably has gotten off the, the hook a little bit <coughs> uh, is it wasn't just Chelsea Manning that should have been in the dock. She, you know, just to put this into perspective, Graham gave a very good introduction there, but just let me add to it. She was part of a massive U.S. military intelligence apparatus. The U.S. military machine is massive. It requires a, a huge intelligence support system. And it's not a spook stuff like w that we would associate with the CIA. Huge amount of junior clerical personnel are required to make this system run. Chelsea Manning was not a commissioned officer in the United States Army. Uh, she wasn't even a, a junior non-commissioned officer. She was something either, I think her rank was either specialist or private first class. Uh, Either way, we're talking about the same grade. It's a very, very junior grade. Uh, her duties would have been literally data processing. But the question that has yet to be asked, as far as I'm concerned, as I say, somebody who was a, a former career soldier themselves, is how did somebody at that level have the access to be able to download such an amount of information? Now, 
Chelsea Manning wouldn't have had the training or the knowledge to understand some of uh, the sensitivities of that information. I believe also she was an extremely naive, immature individual who was easily manipulated, much like, unfortunately, some of the people who get involved with Islamic State activities. Now, if I can say that and park that for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, put a military hat back on me for a minute. Mm-hmm. However, she did do what she did. And while I wouldn't agree entirely with what the prosecutor said, I think the truth of this matter it's always in the grey area. And uh, the prosecutor is one end of the spectrum and the people who claim that she is an activist who fell on her sword for freedom of information are on the other end of the spectrum. I think the, the reality is in the middle. Chelsea Manning swore an oath of allegiance to her state, to her service. She had a duty of care to her comrades, to her superiors, and indeed if she got promoted to her subordinates. Uh, she was derelict in that duty. Uh, you sign uh, the, the the papers, you take the oath, and uh, regardless of what military service you uh, adhere to, and it is it is a binding matter of honour that you do not put those who wear the same uniform as you in harm's way, that you knowingly do not do that. Now, it appears that Chelsea Manning had all kinds of issues with the people she served with. She should never, to my opinion, have been in an armed service. Uh, and this brings me back to the point I was making earlier. During her court-martial, she was the only one in the dock. Where was her commanding officer? Where was her chain of command? Uh, there were, there were a, a whole lot of people, from non-commissioned officers up to commissioned officers at least of the rank of colonel, who were part of a procedural and uh, supervisory chain uh, for uh, Manning and her other soldiers. How was, uh, none of, uh, why was it none of those were brought to book? At the end of the day, somebody who was of commissioned rank, at least of the rank of major or beyond, should have been called to account as to why he or she allowed a soldier under their supervision such random access and such uh, elbow room to be mm. able to manoeuvre with sensitive information. And as far as you're aware, was there any investigation into precisely that issue. How could someone so junior have had access to documents that weren't relevant to their job at all? I'm sure there was on an internal level. Mm. Um, and I'm sure maybe one or two careers have been, uh, you know, stymied or wadded, yeah. to use a military phrase, uh, as a result of that. But if you're going to put one person in the dock, and okay, she made the decision to do what she did and she's the one who leaked. But um, those who facilitated it, they should have been, if not court-martialed, but uh, subject to a bit more rigour. And it's really only, you know, Chelsea, Chelsea Manning. And it was a convenient scapegoat. Uh, I believe that she did deserve a sentence, but uh, not to the extent of which, uh, which she was being given. As I said, there were, it wasn't proven that there were deaths on her watch. Her greatest uh, sin was petulance and naivety. However, we shouldn't let also off the hook here this uh, supposed great secular saint, Julian Assange, mm-hmm. because that's he's the one who facilitated <coughs> Um, and I want I want to come to him. Just one more question. Can, can I just yes? ju- just add one point? Yeah. Assange, I believe, was derelict in a duty of care to Manning. Manning was a young, naive individual with, uh, without the benefit of the life experience or education that Assange had. And Assange callously, as I'm, far as I'm concerned, manipulated that individual. He was happy to take the, ind- the information. It was a, a bonanza for his organisation, WikiLeaks. And then he what, tried to wash his hands. I would have far more respect for the man if he actually made it to the US to stand beside Manning, who Mm. has been incarcerated. Instead, what did he do? He is skulking in the United Kingdom, hiding from charges uh, of a sexual assault nature that the Swedish authorities uh, have levelled against him. Now, you were saying that, you know, um, she she took this oath um, to be loyal to the army and to the state. 
do you allow for any circumstances under which it would be okay to break that? Yes. And uh, Graham has already beaten me to the punch here oh. when he mentioned a man named Daniel Ellsberg. And tell us about him. In my opinion, I think Daniel Ellsberg uh, classifies what a proper whistleblower is. Daniel Ellsberg, at the height of the Vietnam War, he was a former uh, line US Marine Corps officer who had gone back out to serve in Vietnam, this time in a civilian capacity under the stewardship of uh, another individual called John Paul Van. And they were involved in developing uh, the US's both humanitarian and civil military response to the troubles there and developing a regular civil defence groups, in other words, to allow Vietnamese civilian villagers to better defend themselves. It was a very murky, cloudy kind of idea, but the idea was, shall we say, enhancing the self-determination of South Vietnamese rural uh, population to better protect themselves. And in the process of that, himself, uh, Daniel Ellsberg and John Paul Van and many others, came head to head with the US military establishment and the US political establishment who wanted to fight that war, not from a counterinsurgency point of view, but from a conventional arms point of view. And this is where their obsession with industrial management and body counts came about. It was during the, the Robert McNamara era and he had pioneered these methods of how do you know if you're winning the war? You're physically killing more of them. Now, that, that's nonsense. It's been discredited. Um, you know, the, it, these things are about ideas as much as they are about, uh, you know, physical body counts. And Ellsberg was dismayed because he and John Paul Van attempted to use the chain of command and to use the, uh, the machinery available, the apparatus available, both within the military side of things, within the civilian Department of Defence side of things and congressional committees to brief and to alert their governing, government uh, to what was happening, what they felt was a travesty of mismanagement of the war in Vietnam and how it was being lost unnecessarily, they mm. felt. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, anybody who's interested should read the book A Bright Shining Lie, uh, which deals with it. But suffice to say, cutting to the chase, Ellsberg was so disillusioned that he leaked classified papers to uh, the media. I would, I would argue responsible media. Uh, they became known as the Pentagon Papers. And this threw into disarray the, I think, Graham, was it the Nixon government at that yeah. stage? The Nixon-led government's uh, policies and statements that they were making to the American public and to the world at large. It showed contradictions. It showed double standards. It showed up ineptitude and incompetence. And Ellsberg stood his ground. He, uh, when he leaked them, he didn't go running anywhere. He said, you know, he stood, his, uh, he, he stood by what he had done. Mm -hmm. He went to court. I think, did he get incarcerated for a short period? Yeah, he he was not convicted. Um, mm -hmm. And the New York Times uh, went to court and went all the way to the Supreme Court um, to to argue that they could uh, publish his materials, publish the Pentagon Papers, um, which had been blocked by an almost unprecedented uh, order by the United States uh, to, to prevent the publication of them. So both Ellsberg and the New York Times and a number of other media outlets were vindicated in court. What's really striking is about how this concern on the part of administrations for leaks sort of has always been there, but it really kicks off with Ellsberg. So Nixon was furious and wanted to prevent leaks from coming from the government and from, from uh, in the case, this case, the Rand Corporation, which was where um, Ellsberg was at work. And that's when he developed the White House plumbers as a secret unit. Right. Right? Why are they called plumbers? Well, they are there to stop the, the leaks. leaks. Uh, and then, which, of course, their next operation. So they first, they try to break into Ellsberg's mm -hmm. psychiatrist's office to get any, some dirt on him to discredit him as part of this ongoing pushback. But then their next operation uh, was uh, burgling the Watergate Hotel. 
Wow. Estelle Featherman then. So what is a good whistleblower and a bad whistleblower? And where do you fit Chelsea Manning into that? Well, I think the problem is that uh, certainly in the media, they wish to paint a whistleblower uh, the disclosures, uh, the, whose disclosures give them good stories as saints and anybody who's opposed to them as sinners. And in fact, everybody is a human being who, who are, are a combination of being a saint and a sinner. Chelsea Manning, I mean, I, I agree entirely with what was said earlier. Uh, I think the problem there was that uh, she was very, very naive and uh, possibly had no knowledge of what she was doing. I read uh, somewhere recently that, in fact, she first tried to go to the New York Times yeah. and to the Washington Post and uh, they didn't listen to her. And I think this highlights a point that uh, Declan was making about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. I think there's there's a huge problem uh, when you, where and when, if you have something, a disclosure that you believe is of public interest to reveal, to whom do you go? Not for maximum effect, because the media will go for maximum effect. It's to whom do you go to get the the wrong corrected? And uh, if I may, while, mm. while um, uh, the, the earlier conversation was going on, um, there have in fact been military whistleblowers in the United States, and they are very much unsung heroes. And one is in relation to, um, I'm certainly of an age to to have heard of the My Lai Massacre mm. in Viet Cong. But on that occasion, there was a young helicopter pilot who actually stopped the massacre from continuing because he landed his helicopter and had his gunners point their uh, much larger weapons at some of the soldiers who were in the process of massacring the village. Now, he then, he had reported uh, this let's call it a gross breach of discipline, up the line, but got nowhere. However, he was the one who, who basically ended up in fear of his life through the military. What happened was he was talking in a bar to a completely different uh, combat soldier in, in, in Vietnam in one of their recreational places. And uh, this other guy, this guy called um, Rod Ridner, when he got back to the States and came out of the military, he started uh, putting pressure on to different congressmen and so and so forth to get this looked at. Now, it went through congressional hearings and various things, and at no stage did the pilot, Thompson, uh, get any recognition until uh, a good 20 years later when he was then entered into the Aviation Hall of Heroes. Mm. And his story is, is now used in uh, uh, American military training uh, to show how one person of principle can actually stand up in such a situation and and fulfil and obey their their oath. So is office. so is the key thing there how they get the information out? Is that what's important? Well, in the case of this this pilot, a helicopter pilot called Thompson, he he reported it up the line, and nothing, right. and nothing was done. Uh, and this is what you're up against all the time. Um, if if you are involved in any organisation that perceives a culture of loyalty to be more important than a culture of honesty and a culture of integrity, then no matter what you reveal will be blocked within that organisation 
or or will be sidetracked in that organisation. And no matter how many people mouth words like honesty, openness, transparency and integrity, you actually won't get anywhere with it. Then when, when you end up in court, if you do end up in court, I mean, studies have shown that um, where there where there are whistleblower laws or supposedly to protect whistleblowers, but I think one has to realise, and anybody listening out there, the best advice to somebody is if, if you're thinking of blowing the whistle is don't be, because you will suffer incredibly. Yeah. And if you think that the Irish public indis- disclosure legislation will protect you, it, 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 it won't. Uh, because just look at the name, it's a protected disclosure, it's not a protected person. And in fact, you have to be harmed before you can take advantage of it because it, the purpose, well, I'm, I'm not sure what the purpose of it is other than uh, for, for, for some politician to have been able to say in a public forum, we introduced whistleblower legislation because it does not serve a good purpose. But... Um, if you, the thing is, is what is, if we go back to a definition of what is a whistleblower and you asked me, is there a, such a thing as a good or a bad whistleblower? Uh, possibly behind that, you're wondering about what somebody's motivation yes. is. Okay. Now, if what you are disclosing is in the public interest, why does, and, and I don't mean what is of interest to the public, but is in the public interest, why does it matter what your motivation is? And, uh, for instance, if if we go back to one of our interminable um, tribunals of inquiry, uh, the planning inquiry, uh, one of the key, if if you like, whistleblowers who didn't say it at the time, he he actually said to the tribunal that he was activated out of malice Mm. because his pension wasn't being paid. But the fact that he revealed what he revealed exposed this whole uh, level of corruption to do with planning. So really, does it matter what the motivation is? Okay, that's Estelle Feldman. Could I I just add a point? Yeah, briefly, Declan Power. I I think it's a very important point Estelle made and I think it's very elastic though. It depends on the individual because... If you're starting from a point of uh, you know, malice, maybe, it means that how you interpret information could be affected. It doesn't necessarily mean that being accurate. Like I would think like Chelsea Manning versus Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg made, was at pains not to reveal anything that would have been operationally damaging or cause loss of life with US forces. He was very responsible. And I would argue that's because he wasn't filled with malice. He was filled with frustration about the wrong thing being done. And if whistleblowers are operating more from that perspective, I think they're more likely to fulfil their objective as whistleblower. We're talking about whistleblowers this morning and in studio with me, Graeme Finlay, lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations in UCD. Declan Power is a security analyst and Estelle Feldman is a mediator and research associate at the School of Law in Trinity College who specialises in whistleblower protection rights. And on the line now is Annie Mashon. She was an MI5 whistleblower and author of Spies, Lies and Whistleblowers. So Annie, we've been talking about whistleblowers. Will you tell us just a little bit about um, what happened to you and um, and your history of whistleblowing. Yes, and um, actually a lot of what's been said in the previous discussion resonated quite uh, strongly with me, shall we say. Uh, I actually worked for MI5 for six years in the 1990s, and it was there that I met my former partner and colleague, a man called David Shaler, who became a very notorious whistleblower. And um, we saw so many things going wrong in every department that we worked in. 
which we try to, you know, try to raise issues and raise concerns about on the inside, and we're just told to follow orders. But eventually we got to the point where we resigned, along with many of our other colleagues of the same generation, and we ended up going public to try and create a bit of a media storm to ensure that there would be a proper public inquiry um, and perhaps a reform of the secrecy laws in the UK that would require greater access and accountability over the spy agencies in the UK. And and what happened uh, both to you and what were the consequences of what you did? Like, did what you do actually change anything? Well, of course not. I mean, whistleblowing very rarely changes anything, which yeah. is always a very depressing thing to learn. Um, but yeah, in the UK, we were faced, uh, we were under the provision of the Official Secrets Act of 1989, which makes it a crime to blow the whistle, to go public about any of your concerns. And for that, you face three years in prison per charge. So we went public with a national newspaper in the UK and preemptively fled and went on the run around Europe for a month before I returned knowing I would face arrest. And um, I was never charged with anything. I was held on police bail for six months, but was then enabled to go back to uh, see David in France. So we we hid in France for a year in a very remote French farmhouse. And um, then we had another two years living in exile in Paris before David came back to the UK to stand trial, knowing he would be charged, but he wanted to stay in court. He wanted the information that he had revealed to be read into the public record officially during his trial. Unfortunately, the terms of the Official Secrets Act are very, very draconian, so that means that there is no public interest defence. You can't say what your motivation is during the trial, and they can make certain segments of the trial secret. So, of course, he was convicted, and he went to prison for the second time. The first time was when the British failed to extradite him to France in 1998. So the whole, the, the cost of whistleblowing was immense. I mean, not only did we lose our, our personal and professional lives in London, but we, you know, we obviously risked our liberty too. And that was back in the 1990s. Now it's much worse. They're actually talking about a review of the Official Secrets Act in the UK, where they're going to up the prison tariff. So if you are convicted of whistleblowing now from the intelligence agencies, what the Law Commission is recommending is 14 years in prison mm-hmm. for every charge. So we seem to be going helter-skelter down the path that the Americans have been doing over the last decade in their war on whistleblowers using the Espionage Act to try and persecute and prosecute whistleblowers such as self Presumably they're doing that because the internet um, has made both access to information the ability to get it out and the existence of organisations like WikiLeaks much easier and um, and more dangerous for people to leak information. Could you see maybe from their perspective why they're in a big a big panic about it? I can see why they're in a big panic about it. I mean, they they, you know, they had to get up to speed very fast uh, when it came to the internet in the late 1990s, and certainly when it came to new publishing routes such as WikiLeaks. Uh, 10 years later. So yes, there, there's been a bit of a panic and uh, certainly a witch hunt about what they now deem to be the insider threat, aka whistleblowers. Um, having said that, I've been saying for two decades now, actually it would be better to have a proper um, and approved channel where people with ethical concerns can go to uh, from the inside and give evidence. And if there is evidence of criminality, that criminality will be investigated and those who have in prison to commit crimes will go to prison. Now, that would be proper oversight, and I think it would be a win-win situation because then the organisation does not suffer 
uh, the scandal of a big whistleblowing case mm. and actually can improve its working methods and better protect us. But also the potential whistleblower will not have to turn their lives inside out and upside down by um, going public you know, and risking prison. So something like that, I think, would be a, a good step. But it would have to be proven to be really meaningful, to have teeth, to actually do something and change the working methodology of the spies if they're found to be wanting or if they're found to be criminal. And, you know, time after time over the last few decades, we've seen that they have been found to be criminal. So looking back now and the fact that things seem to be worse, you know, from a whistleblowing perspective, would you do it again? (laughs) That's always the question I'm asked. And um, I have to say, I could not imagine not doing it, knowing what I'd known at the time. Um, David and I were always very careful only to talk about stuff that was in the public interest, that the public needed to know in order to try and reform the spies. We never talked about the successes. And of course, you know, they do good work. Good people go into these organisations. They want to make a difference. They want to protect lives. So I'm not trying to run them down. I mean, it's a, a, a difficult job. But when they go wrong, they can go badly wrong because they work in utter secrecy. And that's all I was trying to sort of reform. Mm-hmm. So, yes, of course. I would probably do the same thing again, but I might have done it slightly differently. Uh, certainly in this era of WikiLeaks and the internet, it would be much, uh, much more secure to reveal information in the public interest and make a global splash that would ensure potential reform. OK, and then just finally, we want to move on and talk about WikiLeaks. So I'd be interested in your opinion of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, that I know when, you know, the Chelsea Manning thing first happened, you know, WikiLeaks was explicitly saying we are a journalistic organisation. Mm. But there have been a lot of accusations since, particularly in the light of their behaviour, you know, um, in relation to the American presidency campaign, that actually they're just being turned into a tool of Russia or they're being you know, they're being more malevolent and they have an agenda now. They're not neutral. What's your view? I I wouldn't say that. I mean, I've I've been aware of WikiLeaks for almost a decade. Um, I know Julian Assange slightly. Um, What what do you think of him? What do you think of him? I think he's a man of honour who is trying to do something very brave in a very difficult environment. Um, The Americans have been trying to put a case together against him since 2010, since the Chelsea Manning disclosures. And they are trying to find any way, you know, any law, whatever they can use to try and get him over to America to stand trial. He's a publisher. He's a high-tech high conduit publisher, which is different from something like the New York Times or the Washington Post, for example. But he is a publisher. So this has been the problem for the U.S. administration to try and prosecute him. Because if they go after him, that lays all the other old established mainstream media open to the same type of prosecution for publishing leaks. And there have been a, a cascade of leaks, let's face it, since Donald Trump was elected. You know, the Washington Post has, has been um, inundated with them. Mm. So this is a very difficult problem for the Americans, particularly with the First Amendment. Um, so they are having problems with that. But no, I mean, in terms of WikiLeaks, as soon as I heard about it, I thought, oh, wow, I wish that had existed a decade before when David and I went public. It's not about carelessly pushing, you know, tons of information out to the public. They do fact check. They don't know who their sources are. That's a deliberate um, step to protect their sources. So they, you know, and um, they, they are very careful not to put information out there in the public domain that can cause loss of life. And that has been proven time and time again. So every time you see some American politician saying, they've put agent lives at risk, they put our military at risk, that is a load of rubbish. Um, that has always been rescinded all the way through the story of WikiLeaks. So, and whatever happens to WikiLeaks, that technological model is now out there and other people are building the same sort of 
um, infrastructures to get information in the public interest out there to people. So, you know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Okay, Annie Mashon, many thanks for joining us this morning. That's Annie Mashon, an MI5 whistleblower and author of Spies, Lies and Whistleblowers. Estelle, what do you think of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks? Do you think they're behaving honourably? Well, I haven't met him, Annie, and I, I have to say thank you, Annie, because um, I recall the David Taylor incident and um, immediately it makes me smile on two counts. One was that um, it was said at the time the furthest thing from James Bond and a special agent than David Shaler would be hard to find. He was just, a, if you'll excuse me for saying, but he was just an ordinary guy. Um, and the second one was that when he was in France, the British tried to extradite him. And uh, it was reported at the time that the French authorities had absolutely no idea what the British were on about in the sense that they were just laughing at the at the thought of the whole thing. Uh, but having said that, as I say, Annie, Annie has met Julian Assange. I haven't. I, I have great difficulty with um, somebody in his position setting himself up as the arbiter of what will or won't save lives or what is or isn't in the public interest. Now, if if the releases are mediated by news organs like The Guardian, uh, The New York Times and that group of newspapers whom who are, well, uh, I know I know Donald Trump wouldn't say so, who, but who the rest of the world knows are responsible news organs, I think that is different. But um, I, I would be inclined more to agree with, with, with what Declan said earlier. If Bradley, at the time Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, uh, was left swinging in the wind, having sent the material to, to WikiLeaks, and somebody like Julian Assange would have known full well uh, what the potential was not for the leaks, but for the leaker. And the fact was that that young soldier, who should never, as was stated, have been in such a position, was exposed to the death penalty for, mm. for, for what he had done. So this is a terrible thing. But if we compare and contrast, Edward Snowden, yeah. unlike um, Chelsea Manning, knew exactly what he was doing. But he is also somebody who should never have been in the position he was in. He should not have, well, let, let's go back a bit. They shouldn't have been collecting all of that data to begin with. But given that they are collecting it, they should not have it contracted out to people who who are not subject to some serious uh, organisational authority. And he knew exactly what he was doing and he got out of the way uh, before they could arrest him. A very limited number of places where he could go to. So he ended up uh, in, in, in Russia. Uh, I disagree with the comment that he should go back and face the music because, as Annie has said, uh, if you breach a government's Official Secrets Act, they will not allow you use the defence of public interest. If Edward Snowden would be allowed to have the defence of public interest and to represent himself as such... Uh, in court, and I mean that there there are people and lawyers all around the world who who now, if you like, are making money because of the public interest in his disclosures uh, in re relation to Facebook and so on. But but given that he cannot face a fair trial hmm. if he goes back to the United States, I don't believe he should go back to the United States. That was Estelle Feldman. Um, yeah, Estelle. I, I'd, I'd also like to take issue with something you said, Sarah. Oh, please do. Okay. Uh, you, you were saying <laughs> that we can understand why the security services are all panicking. That bit I agree with. 
But I don't accept that they have a, 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 a rationale and a thought out reason for doing it because some of the most serious leaks endangering lives have come from the people at the top. So it seems to be the case that if you are the person at the top, you can say or do anything you want. The only people who get uh, persecuted and prosecuted are the people at the bottom. So before we look at, let us say, the Trump White House, let us go back to the George W. Bush White House, where they revealed that uh, Valerie Plame was a CIA agent and the sole reason for doing that was because her husband, Joe uh, Joe Wilson, who had been one of their highly regarded uh, and and authoritative ambassadors, had published a report, an opinion piece, it was, I think, in the New York Times, to say that the claims that um, Iraq were buying, what was it, um, uh, weapons-grade uranium from Niger was a complete fabrication and falsification, as a consequence of which staffers in the White House revealed her name. God knows how many people actually could have or did die because of that. And those two people, um, I think they were pardoned or were they charged even. But if you reveal at that high level and if we go back to Watergate, anybody who was found guilty of Watergate, they will immediately get pardoned by the next president of that ilk before they leave office. And Graeme, I don't know if I'm fair or not, but I always felt number 10 Downing Street did expose David Kelly. The man who, you know, exposed the whole sexing up of the Iraq dossier. and Yes, I mean, I think there is an interesting question. I thought uh, talking about the difference between the two places, the United States of America and, and the UK. Um, and it's striking that all the legislation has this exposure and this, this closeted nature so you don't get your day in court. And yet the cultural differences are, are, are sometimes pull apart. So in the United States, there is this um, long-standing history of a commitment to natural rights. Um, you know, in fact, the first whistleblower legislation took place in the U.S. Navy and Army in 1778, you know, in during the Revolutionary War. Um, the um, whistleblowers inside the Army Navy were, in this case, were protected. But um, And Snowden was sort of buying, tapping into that when he made his own very principled stand and showed people basically how leaking should be done. Um, over in the U.K., where there are no, there is no Bill of Rights where, you know, parliamentary supremacy reigns, um, and you have the securitization, you get the kind of um, experience which we've been hearing about. I mean, where just there are almost no barriers to what what the official agencies of of, uh, those places should. So, Why do you think uh, Snowden did a better job of it? Well, he, first of all, I mean, again, motive isn't maybe the most important thing, although his motives were sort of highly ideological. I mean, they wouldn't be my philosophy. He's a libertarian. And he was he was shocked by the kind of things he was uncovering again as the a surveillance. Sort of consultant surveillance yeah. and and but he he again instead of going to WikiLeaks, uh, which I mean its heyday was when Chelsea Manning leaked all these documents to them. After that, WikiLeaks fragments between Assange and other groups um, over this question of protection for whistleblowers, the pastoral relationship to whistleblowers, the um, redacting or editing or curating of documents so that people are people's personal details are not exposed, people aren't exposed to harm. Now, again, you know, um, it's quite right that um, there's not been proven that anybody's ever been killed as a result of, of, of Chelsea Manning's dump. But uh, so Snowden went to reputable journalists, went to uh, reputable news organizations, heavily redacted the material he leaked so that no, again, operations were compromised. 
no um, agents were exposed, no identities were revealed. Because, of course, if you're of a, a libertarian commitment to data privacy or, or the right to, to, to data privacy, you know, you're not going to expose people's personal details on and the actually, internet. And actually, I think WikiLeaks did that quite recently in relation to the Turkish um, coup. They exposed loads of email addresses and details about particularly Turkish women and exposed them to huge danger. I mean, it's in Erdogan's Turkey, absolutely. And, you know, WikiLeaks has, I mean... To some extent, again, I I don't I haven't met Julian Assange either. Yeah. Um, has become to some extent, you know, what it was supposed to be against, right? So you now have an organization which has a brand which is jealously protected by Julian Assange, who forces people to sign really tough non-disclosure agreements, which would be typical of the kind of thing you'd find in a private <laughs> evil corporation, right? Uh, and and he's the one who's going to decide, you know, what you can disclose and what you can't. And uh, you know, when he comes short of funds, he gets a show on. Russia Today, uh, my officially favorite uh, 24/7 English news bulletin. I mean, the and and his whole and just I mean, the last few days, uh, Bob Mueller is appointed a special counsel to investigate Trump Russia leaks. WikiLeaks comes out the next day with completely concocted leaks in quotation marks about Bob Mueller, uh, who is yeah. an incredibly respected person in U.S. law enforcement. So it's 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 become the wrong way to do it. And it's become the wrong way to govern it. And so Snowden did it the correct way. And again, the only he says the reason he hasn't come back is is to get back to what Estelle was saying, is that he's not going to get a, a chance to put his case in court. Declan Power, just to put the point for the security services, you know, obviously the nature of what they do must be secret. Obviously. Um, how do you manage democratic accountability of their activities, you know, without... Um, people being vulnerable to whistleblowers, you know, who sometimes could be wrong and maybe are acting irresponsibly and maybe do endanger lives. Well, I don't think there's any maybe about it. Uh, Julian Assange is not operationally qualified to understand the uh, the effect of the information or the significance, rather, of some of the information. I mean, there's so much of it that has been released anyway that uh, I doubt it has been properly assessed are uh, analysed from the WikiLeaks people's perspective in terms of, I don't think they really know that they're like kids playing with sticks of dynamite, juggling them and uh, for their own ends. Now, to address the point you make, which I think is a fundamental one and a very important one, if you're going to have uh, intelligence services, which all states need, all the, you know, democratic states need protection and is therefore that's why we have law enforcement services, that's why we have armed services and uh, intelligence and security apparatus. In the UK, for example, they have the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, now, I'm not saying it's perfect. We heard from Graham there about some of the inadequacies within the UK system. They have very draconian legislation. No more than we have here, actually, I might add. Uh, the special, uh, the Emergency Powers Act was quite draconian, uh, which was brought in in this country in the lead up to the Second World War and was in existence mm. up until very, it was only rescinded somewhat very recently. Um, we do well to remember that. But what we lack here, I would say, just to, to localise it a little bit, is we don't have, our policymakers are very illiterate when it comes to matters of intelligence and security. And that bothers me hugely as somebody who is uh, you know, a practitioner within security and defence. Um, you know, countries that lack that oversight at policymaker level are more uh, are are open to abuse, are open to ineptitude uh, creeping in. Now, even within countries that do have that, such as the UK, the US have uh, various uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committees, uh, Intelligence Oversight Committees. Uh, so 
and they have problems, but they're a bigger jurisdiction. Now, what I would be saying is we should have a system in place in this country uh, and other, other small countries. Uh, maybe we, we steal some of what they do and turn it to our ends here. Um, whereby policymakers are educated to a point of understanding and selected to be on committees where they give undertakings about you know, that there are restrictions on talking about classified information. And then you have this system whereby you can make better, more informed decisions because the whole idea of the gathering of illicit information is to help a state protect its citizens. And uh, whether it's a country like Ireland at one end of the spectrum or whether it's a large entity like the United States, Oftentimes what happens is within organisations, it becomes an obsession about the gathering of information, but not the, the, the proper analysis and then secrecy. And that leads to rivalry between different agencies. Uh, it, it leads to uh, jostling for uh, budgetary resources. Mm. And, you know, it's things like that that contributed to 9-11 happening. You know, it's not all, one thing I would say civil libertarians sometimes get very worked up when they hear about uh, access you know, or, or electronic surveillance and eavesdropping and things like that. But the, pro- the problem is, from the practitioner's point of view, it's when you gather the information, making sense out of it, a huge amount of information gets gathered and then nothing gets done with it. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's a big problem in terms of uh, how you how you protect your society then. If you, you're not using the ammunition you've accrued. Um, Graham, I just want to come back to current leaking and there's a lot of leaking going on in the White House against Trump. And it's easy to look at that and go, well, he's a crazy man. He's doing these crazy things. So the only noble thing the people in there can do is leak it so that we may hasten him out of his position of power as quickly as possible. But there's another way of looking at that which is that the security and intelligence services in the US don't like their president and they're going out to destroy him, which is fine when he's a bad king. But what if they do it against a good king? Well, this is, this is something which has plagued all presidents. Again, this obsession by presidents um, to, um, to stop leaks starts with, doesn't start with Nixon, but it ratchets up with Nixon. Obama pursued leaks and journalists as assiduously as anybody, right? So Donald Trump is just a sort of louder version of the same. But yes, some of the intelligence services are leaking either, mostly I like to think, or they claim to think, because they want to correct the president's behavior. There is, as Declan said, this elaborate structure of Senate and House intelligence committees who have certain kind of clearance, have the processes in place by which sensitive intelligence can be subjected to democratic oversight. Uh, Trump is riding roughshod over them, and that is causing a pushback both from Uh, Democrats in the House and in the Senate and from the intelligence services, both national and international. So uh, what they need to do is, I think, um, Trump has to make friends with his intelligence services um, and stop behaving outside the system because the system may not work perfectly. And that's why we have Snowden and Chelsea Manning. But it's a heck of a lot better than just a free for all of, of behavior, which is not consistent from day to day and just ignores all these protocols and laws which are in place. So Estelle Feldman, I give you the last word on that. Uh, You know, is it okay for us to say then that what the anti-Trump leakers are doing is moral? Or are we not opening a door to uh, them doing the same thing against a president we like? Well, I I, I would ask the question, if they don't agree with him, why are they working for him? Right. Uh, and and uh, I, I again, it goes back to what was said originally. You belong to an organisation and you make certain commitments to that organisation. And if you want to break those commitments, 
then you make a choice of of leaving the organization or you stay in there and you take the consequences. And organizations need yeah. whistleblowers uh, because, of course, now one of the we're talking about democratic oversight of, of um, intelligence uh, agencies, but also the military. And one of the striking things about the military is that they are sticklers for preserving the rule of law within the military. The Uniform Code of Military Justice in the United States is the reason the military doesn't give in to all the instincts we all have. I mean, now imagine you're given the ability to kill people, whether you're a, a police officer or you're a member of the military. You know, your instincts are to be as indiscriminate with that as possible. And that's one of the some of the things Chelsea Manning revealed. The only way you can overcome that is training, but also structures, structures of command, but also structures of reporting and transparency, which keep thing and protections, which keep everything on a basis of the rule of law. So when, you know, organizations need these whistleblower protections simply to, to maintain the rule of law, transparency, and, and to prevent forces of loyalty and so, sort of solidarity from wrecking their mission and ultimately leading to them violating human rights or doing bad things. And, and so the, it's, it's quite striking that the military has been one of the people to push back against, for example, civilian officers uh, in, wanting to engage in torture, uh, you know, or civilians, I mean, civilian political yeah. appointees yes. wanting yeah. to engage in torture because partly they know that they'll be tortured if they're captured, but partly because it goes against the the rights and and laws which are embodied in the Uniform Code of Military and Justice. The Code of Ethics. It should be remembered that uh, during the War of Independence in this country that the excesses uh, of the Crown forces were restrained by the regular British Army. You know, it was, oh, the regular yeah. British Army often intervened in acts that were being carried out by what were known as the auxiliaries, who were a paramilitary type RIC um, uh, adjunct, um, ex-military, ex-officers mostly, uh, but they weren't subject to military discipline. And so in popular memory, we remember the Black and Tans, which they were uh, sort of connected to. Um, the regular British Army, for the most part, conducted themselves very honourably, and so they limited the amount of carnage for exactly the same reasons Graham mentions. Just on a, on a, a separate note, I'm racking my brain trying to remember. I heard a name mentioned to me recently of a young Irish American. We we're talking about whistleblowers who claims he was uh, he was um, deported out of this country. Uh, he was a graduate of Maynooth University. Uh, the mid to late 90s, mm. and that the Irish media didn't want to uh, uh, handle his story. And he's now living in Russia. Somebody sent me a link to a YouTube piece with him uh, giving giving a talking, talking about how the US uh, had harshly treated him. He'd worked in the US Foreign Service after he'd served at the US Marine Corps. And uh, I just... Uh, we must look that up. We must. But I'm, I'm always dubious about though when people say that they're being censored by media in a democratic country. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you about loyalty and maybe I'll bring in um, the West Wing, which I always thought was a really dubious uh, political um, agenda on it because the the message of the West Wing was the president is a good man. Mm. And sometimes it looks like he's doing really bad things, but that's because you don't know about all this other stuff that's going on. And it really troubles him when he has to make decisions that might kill people. Like that was the... You know, that was the idea of it. So in the army, um, you know, and you do have this um, military chain and maybe there is somebody who doesn't understand why decisions are being taken. So they have to be prevented from doing damage. Precisely. No, that, that's yeah. a very valid point. And it really needs to be um, 
understood by people that if every member of uh, of a hierarchical armed force took it upon themselves to start uh, personally interpreting and questioning every order. Yeah. There, but there is a happy medium. And this is why where it comes back to something that we didn't touch on that I was thinking about. The formation of people, uh, even the formation of people at, 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 at a school level, at second level, are we giving enough time to give people the powers to be self-aware, to analyse situations, to make ethical decisions? I think we need to do more of that at schools. We need to do more of that in third level education. And certainly within the armed forces, it is incumbent upon all members, whatever rank, to be uh, well informed. I mean, when I enlisted in the Defence Forces, you were taught about obeying all lawful orders. Emphasis on the word lawful. Okay. So if somebody ordered you to shoot an unarmed civilian, that, you know, even the, the, the biggest chump in the room knew that that was an unlawful order. And, you know, the, it was expanded out from that. Now, at commission, at officer level, in the training, you know, you were put under a, a certain amount of pressure. And that pressure is designed to make you make a significant, a correct operational decisions, but also ethical decisions. And uh, you know, you need yeah, that to be developed. Yeah, but do you not get in? Actually, I might career. put this to Estelle. Do you not get into moral relativism? Okay, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but 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 yes, but but either an order is lawful or unlawful, and and it's not just that doesn't just apply in the military. That's in every walk of life. Mm-hmm. Something is either lawful or unlawful, uh, and you mightn't see it in those terms. But something is within the memorandums and articles of association for a company to do or not to do. And if you're a member of the board and actions are taking place that do not fall within that, then it's unlawful. And as a member of the board, you should not be participating in that and you should see that it ceases. If you are uh, 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 lower down in the organisation, then if you're if up the hierarchy, people won't agree, then now you, you've got statutory obligations to go to different regulators and so on to report these things. A, a lot of our lives now are so are, are in a sense over-regulated. But there are mechanisms whereby uh, things can be reported. The problem is in, in, in areas that affect us most, if you like, like, say, the health services. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, com- that, that, that's a complete disaster area in terms of, um, of, of people being able to express views. Well, we saw it with that terrible case of grace. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so um, th- 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 this is what happens. It's 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 in our overarching bodies. It's not just our politicians who need to be educated about things like, and I agree, like security and intelligence services. They need to be educated about accountability. Yeah. I think the key is accountability, and and I would challenge you to name any. Uh, 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 and any of the stories we've been hearing over the last while uh, where there has been true accountability and where somebody has actually stood up and said, hands up, I'm the one who actually was responsible for that. And I'm not saying blame somebody Mm. because we have this whole thing of we have to blame somebody, but just somebody to say, hold on, I'm responsible for that. 
give me two days and I'll see, can I sort it out and come back to you? But nothing like that happens in this country. It's just, it's accountability. Uh, uh, and we can't have accountability if we don't know how to analyse what's going on. I think it's a cultural deficit, actually, Estelle, in this country, that um, cutehorism trumps uh, people you know, standing up and being accountable and saying, no, I was responsible for that. The buck stops with me. I d- or, you know, I didn't realise that happened, but it happened on my watch. I was responsible and therefore I'm resigning. And uh, in the corp, I know you have to go, Graeme, you have to get out. I know in a corporate um, and in the banking crisis and all of that, um, people who raised objections, you know, to mis-selling of financial products or whatever, the attitude to them would be that kind of morality and ethics were irrelevant in the financial world. And you were kind of naive or stupid if you just didn't get that, you know. Um, Graeme, I'll definitely give you the last word and then we'll stop or we'll be here till lunchtime. So loyalty. Well, as someone who teaches um, moral philosophy, ethics, yeah. human rights and, and, and democratic accountability, I'm delighted to hear all of this kind of thing. And it is... It is striking that, you know, people can go and do their jobs and they can be loyal if they know they're working within structures which are legitimate and have safeguards and have principles which can be stood over. So you don't have to be thinking constantly in this Hamlet-like way about, am I doing the right thing by <laughs> making this trade, right? Yeah. You, you, you just, you have to have your a critical intelligence, know what the values of which are involved, know what the rules and procedures are and know that they're legitimate. And then, you know, you should be able to evaluate but, orders you get yeah. and, and, and decisions you make. And that should, in my experience, and we were talking about this the other day in terms of feminism and a backlash, but I think there's been a massive backlash against the idea of ethics. And I see it in a corporate level all the time where um, it's no the, the only thing that matters is the bottom line and people who do raise their hands, you know, are just edged out. And this idea of loyalty, you're either loyal to the company or you're not and you're right. And it can be the church, uh, the party, the army, whatever it is, that is the higher um, value okay. at all times. My unethical case for ethics is that, you know, that may be the imperatives which a lot of people feel real pressure from, you know, the Loyalty, which which is not such a bad thing, right? Complete rank self-interest, which often is, uh, but again, under the right structures is okay. In the end, you know, you will get caught, right? And we've seen people get caught time and time again. Now, we didn't get the results we wanted. People don't go to jail. People are not sanctioned. People, uh, but, you know, you will then have to account for what you did. And it's in the organization's interest anyway, not to find itself in that position where you're explaining um, and trying to damage control, right? So so all these organizations, again, should see that it's in their self-interest and it's in the interest of any individual person within it to take a critical look, make sure that the procedures which are there for a good reason are followed. Uh, because even, even if you're a complete and utter sociopath, you yeah. should follow these kinds of guidelines. If only. I think we better leave it there. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>